You seek power, correct? Then let us form a pact. Since your name has been disgraced already, why not make a podcast and wreak havoc? Join us with a single word. Persona! Welcome to Triple Click, where that just happened. This week we're talking about the Persona series on the eve of Persona 5 finally coming to non-PlayStation platforms. We've got class in the morning and demons to fight after school, so let's put on our uniforms and get to it. I'm Kirk Hamilton. I'm Maddie Myers. And I'm Jason Schreier. Hello. 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 It's us again. Here we are. Once again, we are are back. And man, boy, am I sleep deprived. (laughs) Having two children is no joke, as it turns out. Wake up, Jason. It's time for school. It's time to go to school and fight demons. Oh, no. This is actually a dream. I haven't studied podcasting. (laughs) Yeah. You were having a dream about needing to sleep. Oh, Mm -hmm. man. You remember that Calvin and Hobbes where he's trying to fall asleep and he can't fall asleep and then his mom wakes him up? Oh, my God. One of the most nightmarish Calvin and Hobbes. That's like uh, the million Calvin and Hobbeses. Do you mean the one where he, like, imagines that he can't sleep, but that's actually a dream that he's having? And it's like a horrifying (laughs) reveal. And it ends with him being woken up by his mother. Right, because it's actually morning. The worst. And he's like, this is going to be a long day or something. (laughs) (laughs) So Jason is Calvin right now. Well, we feel for you, man. I am, except only getting three hours at a time. It's like uh, the the feeling, the best comparison I can make is like, you know how when you go to bed, but you know that you have to get to the airport for a 4 a.m. Yes. flight the yes. next night and you're like, okay, no, I'm going to have to wake up at two. I'll try <laughs> to enjoy this. It's just a little bit, but it'll, it'll, it'll be over soon. Imagine that except every single night for like forever, <laughs> at least three months. <laughs> Um, that sounds super fun. Yeah. Also super fun being supported by <laughs> listeners. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so we true. Like, it is fun being it's supported fun. by listeners. It's fun. It's a rip-roaring time. If that was a video game, I would play it often. <laughs> it would be fun. Um, so we are a listener-supported show, as we say at the start of every episode. You probably know this, but maybe this is your first time listening to Triple Click, in which case, hey, welcome to Triple Click. We're glad mm-hmm. you're here. And did Surprise. you know that we're a listener-supported podcast? Because we are... <laughs> And if you'd like to support us making this show, you can become a member of Maximum Fun, which is our podcast network. And that supports us, that supports the network, and also gets you access to bonus episodes of our show and other podcasts. But uh, we do one every month, all sorts of different things. And um, there's a backlog going all the way back to when this show started. So you get a whole bunch of stuff if you become a member. So you can become a member at MaximumFun.org slash join. That's the place to go to sign up. And we sincerely appreciate everyone who is a member. We don't have ads. We don't have sponsors. We totally just do this thing with your support, which lets us make exactly the show that we want to make. And that's really cool. Mm -hmm. Also, we're going to be doing um, another Beans cast this month on a movie. And it's a very exciting movie that everyone's been talking about, Uh the Super Mario Brothers movie. (laughs) Now you might be asking, well, wait, did the Triple Click crew get an early copy of the upcoming animated Mario movie? (laughs) No, in fact, we are talking about the 1993 Super Mario Brothers movie, which stars Dennis Hopper and John Leguizamo. Looks to me like some sort of drug-induced fever dream, a movie that I've actually never seen and that Maddie, I know, Yeah, Kirk has never seen it, which is a huge reason why this Mm -hmm. is being forced upon Kirk for once. Jason and I are now the ones who have seen the movie. (laughs) It's true, but I haven't seen it since I was a kid, so, like, I have zero memory of it. Right, whereas I have seen it 
multiple times as an adult because I kind of love it and I think it owns and <laughs> oh, is hilarious. Yeah, I'm a little obsessed with the how horrifying it is. Like Mario nice. in real life as a movie. Why would that happen? This movie dares to ask that and answer it. It did happen. It happened and we saw it and it came out and we're going to watch it. And we're going to talk about it. So that'll be the Beans cast for this month. I am certainly excited and uh, I hope that all of you are as well. So anyways, MaximumFun.org slash join, become a member, get access to bonus episodes, including us talking about a horrifying Mario movie. <laughs> all right, let's get into this episode's topic. It's time to talk even more about the Persona series. Yeah. So it's finally time for a whole episode about Persona. Is it going to be 90 hours long or more like 110 hours? Or <laughs> Depends. If you try to listen to the whole episode, it's more like 110, 120 hours. But mm-hmm. if you really min-max, you, you can get through it in You need to listen to the episode in the right order. And you might miss stuff, so just be really careful out there, folks. You can uh, visit polygon.com for a lot of helpful tips posts about yeah, how to get through this uh, podcast. the triple-click episode on what the deal is with Persona. We will be publishing that guide right upon release. That's a joke. It's we funny we be. joke, but because I've been playing Persona 5, I've been on Polygon so much because y'all have those guides. <laughs> There's so many that really are very useful. Anyways, let me give a little spiel here about what Persona is for anybody listening who's heard us talk about it and maybe kind of knows what it is, but would like a refresher. Persona is a series of Japanese role-playing games that dates back to the 90s, though its second, more modern act arguably began with 2006's Persona 3. There have been two mainline games since then, Personas 4 and 5, and each one has seen the series profile grow a little bit more in the West and North America. They're still niche games compared to a Madden or a Call of Duty, but they're less niche with each passing year. Each Persona game of that ilk, 3, 4, and 5, they tell a similar sort of story, at least in the broad strokes, of an unlikely band of Japanese high schoolers who discover a dark, demonic world hidden beneath our own, and who go on to harness the power of their inner selves, their personas, to do battle against those demonic forces. Each story plays out more or less over the course of a school year, and during that time, the heroes battle their own personal demons, and as they resolve their inner conflicts and strengthen their bonds with one another, they grow all the more powerful in battle. Each entry in the series blends anime visual aesthetics, funky jazz fusion music, visual novel style storytelling, dating sim elements, and elaborate, involved turn-based combat into a 100-plus hour saga that is both exhilarating and occasionally exhausting. The series lived for many years cordoned off as a PlayStation exclusive, though that has begun to change recently with a 2020 port of Persona 4 to PC. And finally, PC and console ports of 2017's Persona 5. And that is happening this week. Persona 5 is coming to Game Pass. It's coming to PC. It's finally going to be available uh, for people who, who don't have a PlayStation platform and would like to play it somewhere else. So it's finally time to talk about it. Here we are. We're going to talk about Persona. And I'll just say I have played Persona 3 Portable. I played Persona 4 Golden. I then played it again. I was playing Persona 4 Golden yet again on the Steam Deck <laughs> and have been playing through Persona 5 Royal after beating Persona 5 back in 2017 and reviewing it. So I have a lot of experience with that part of the series with 3, 4, and 5. But I'm curious, I guess up front, what are the two of your experience levels with this series like? Jason, I know you've played these, so why don't you go first? Yeah, well, so first of all, I just want to say that you can you can always tell from a triple-click intro which one of us uh, is no longer a professional games journalist and no longer has to write about games all day and can therefore, <laughs> can therefore just go really off and be like, really puts the time in. Me and Jason are like intros. off the cuff, whatever. Yeah, I almost just copy-pasted the summary of the Persona series that I wrote in my <laughs> review of Persona 5 because oh, it was pretty good and I spent a while on it. 
I was like, yeah. very nostalgic, fun right. little tip uh-huh. for the fans. I'm gonna write a new one. I wrote an all new one just for Triple wow. Play. This is the exclusive place. But I, yeah, I just want to say one of us, one of us has, one of us has the bi- the mental bandwidth to be able to write <laughs> stuff about games in their spare time. Where you know, it's pretty fun to write about video know. games. So it's a fun thing to write about. Pitch Polygon, maybe. <laughs> um, I think the three of us were probably going to be skewing towards the newer games in the series. So apologize, apologies to anyone out there who's hoping that we'll talk about Persona One and Two because we're probably not going to. Or go like there. Shin Megami Tensei or whatever well, I played, else. I played, I played those games. Those are I'm totally sure you different, did. totally different games. The Shin Megami Tensei games. But as far as Persona, um, my experience starts with Persona Three, um, which I believe Kirk, you and I discovered at the same time during my first year at Kotaku into 2012. Um, we both started playing that game and then we both jumped into Persona 4 Golden on the Vita and we both got really into both of those games. And then obviously I played Persona 5. I've played through the entire game twice, which is pretty pretty wild. That's like at a least lot of 100, hours. 150 hours of my life that I'll never get back. So uh, yeah, so I spent a lot of time with <laughs> these games. I never actually finished 3. I finished 4. Um, and then finish five. Four, of course, has a particularly memorable ending because it's a, the whole game is a murder mystery, and at the end you have to figure out who did it, which is a fun a fun reveal. Um, and so, yeah, that's that's my experience with the games. I've played a lot of the newer ones. Nice. How about you, Maddie? I am the least persona literate on the on the podcast. Uh, so, of course, as a not liker of turn based JRPGs. Mm. Persona games were really hard sell for me, although I have many friends, including the two of you, who love them. So I feel like it's a TV show I haven't seen, but I know a lot of the plot beats. Uh, I specifically feel like I know a lot of the beats of Persona 4 because I remember that being a really big turning point just for people I know. I'm not as familiar with 3, but I remember 4 being when I really started to hear about this game, especially from marginalized people and like queer people I know being super into it, but also super uncertain how to feel about the homophobia Mm. and transphobia in the game because it's a game that arguably has a trans character as a main character, but the game doesn't really treat them very well. But people really love the game. And there's just so many, you know, emotionally torn Tumblr posts written to this effect. And I've read many of them and enjoyed reading about them. And all that was enough to wear me down when Persona 5 Royal came out and I played through the first what are the temples called? Are they the palaces. dungeons, palaces? Yeah, the palaces? yeah, palaces. I played through to the end of that, which is 10 hours. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's a long first act. Most of which is cutscenes. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. But I did get to the end and I kind of wished it were an anime and I still kind of wish it were an anime. I well, think it is I an would anime. love that. <laughs> um, because I just, I think that the turn-based combat, and we can get into it, it's great. But it is still turn-based JRPG combat. So the fact that I'm saying it's great is a very high compliment for me. But it's still it's still a hard sell. So we we can get into why that is. Yeah, well, that's why it's perfect that it's now on Switch and Steam right. Deck. Um, Which because seems you can like play a better it while watching format. TV. Yeah, like well, much better. Yeah, and it also feels more like a book in that context. So unbelievably, I am considering buying it yet again or downloading <laughs> it yet again and just playing it on the Steam Deck or something, or the Switch, I don't care which, just so that I can maybe finally get through one Persona game. And maybe this is going to be the conversation 
that convinces me to do the that. The royal version, Persona 5, the original, had a little bit of homophobic stuff, like gross stereotype stuff. Um, royal tones that down a little bit. I think it's still there, if I remember correctly, but it's uh It's toned, toned down. down. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's plenty in these games that we could get into as problematic. Like, mm-hmm. the treatment of female characters across the board, not ideal. But hey, this is not... That's not why you go to a Persona game. You go for the high school drama. You go for the the tropes themselves interplaying with one another and bouncing the off Buffy, of each other. The Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Exactly. Kirk and I, I remember we were talking a while ago. It's funny, Persona 4 and 3 are actually what started split screen and then triple click. So without triple click, without Persona, we wouldn't have triple click because that Kirk and I started this feature on Kotaku in 2012 called Burning Questions. Mm-hmm. Uh familiar sounding feature um, that was essentially <laughs> an excuse of us to just like put a transcript of our like Slack conversation, I am conversation about Persona 3 and that like we eventually started doing that more regularly and then eventually turned it into a podcast and so that is eventually what became Split Screen um, and then of course Maddie Myers came along and we became the powerhouse that we are today but yeah Persona <laughs> has some some important Persona lore That's in our really history. Nice. The social link was formed. It's true. Um, I've spent the better part of this year playing through Persona 5 Royal because I it had been full price on PlayStation and I just wasn't willing to pay 60 bucks or whatever to play a game I'd already played. But then I found it on sale and was like, all right, fine, I'm going to get it. And I've been playing it entirely in remote play using uh, Chiaki, that app that lets you play PlayStation games uh, streaming to your Steam Deck. So I've been playing the whole thing on Steam Deck. And I'm far. I'm like 80 some hours into it. This is just chipping away at it every couple times a week for months and months. I've just my whole year. It's like going to the gym. You just got to do it a couple times a week and you'll make a lot of progress over time. It's exactly like going to the gym. It's going to make you feel more energetic. It's Uh going to really put Uh a pep in your step because you're playing Persona 5 a few times a week. Exactly. (laughs) So playing through this game has a few things about the game have struck me. And one is that it's not really about the depth of any one aspect of it, of the world, of the characters, the storytelling. It's not that it's so fleshed out. It's actually the opposite. So I really like going to brunch. Um, I, I love going to brunch. And I, I really missed brunch during the pandemic and haven't really actually had that much time for brunch. But whenever I go to brunch, I like to get a lot of things because that's kind of the fun of brunch is you got, you know, your your eggs and your toast and your hash browns and maybe a side dish and, you know, maybe French some kind toast. of you're splitting some French toast some with people at the table. On there. Then you got your orange juice and your coffee and your water. So there's a variety of things and you can kind of go from one thing to the other to the other. And that's what I really like about that meal. It's very different than just you have a sandwich and you just eat the sandwich. It's all kind of stacked on top of each other. Brunch is basically how you play video games, too. You're just mm. like, I'll take the whole sample well, platter. It's also so, how Kirk has tried not to play video right, games in the past. <laughs> not succeeded. Yeah, I was going to say, it's a lot of times, sometimes it is. This year it has been because it's been a weird year. But a lot of times it's actually not. I'm more of a sandwich kind of guy where I'm just mm. like, I'm eating this whole sandwich. Mm-hmm. I'm going to finish the whole damn thing um, to the bitter end. And then when you finish it, you want to eat it again. So I guess the video game, it's like... Uh, you throw it up. And, <laughs> <laughs> and you just go back to the it. restaurant to the same sandwich place, Just is do. this food metaphor working? How's this working? Does it make any I sense? Do, do I that. think it's perfect. No, I, I think you, you go back to the same place and you get the same sandwich again because yeah, it was so sandwich. good, which is uh-huh. certainly how I am with my local sandwich place. Um, so anyways, that's kind of the thought I've been having as I've been playing Persona 5 is... What kind of sandwich is Persona 5? 
It's not a sandwich. It's it's brunch. It's brunch. That's what oh, I'm it's saying. Brunch. It's an it's eclectic meal within it. the game itself. It's it's yes. a little of this. It's a little of that. It's a, it's a journey. Of course, of course. Yes. So that's the experience that I've had playing it. Is that there's not really a lot of depth to any of the characters. And going back and playing through these social links again, I've just I've been kind of blasting through it, going pretty quickly. I played it already, so I really know how to min max my character and move through it. And that's not really the thing that I find appealing about the game. In fact. I really barrel through all of the social stuff and it's it's kind of just the rhythm of it that I'm enjoying more than any of the specific content. The way that I've been playing, I have these power-ups that recharge my mana and my power while I'm in dungeons, which lets me just play through the whole dungeon in one whack, which I think I mentioned this before is kind of not the most fun way to play because yeah. the dungeons are big in Persona 5, especially they're really involved. There's all this level design, there are stages and there's a whole story to each dungeon. And because I don't want to waste multiple nights in the schedule, I go through the whole thing. And then it winds up just being that I spend a lot of sessions playing the game, going through the dungeon. And then also that I spend a lot of time just marathoning through social stuff. And that's more fun. I really like all of the social interactions, but each individual social link that you build up with a character, you know, each time you hang out with them, you rank up, you learn a new thing about them, your character, your your relationship kind of matures or gains some, you gain some new insight into them. It's made me realize how each character is actually pretty shallow in, in this game, and I don't feel any real meaningful connection to any of them. Like, we joke about, you know, oh, Makoto is like, she's the girl that you have to date, but like, she's barely a character. I mean, she's she's totally this archetype of the overachieving student council, mm-hmm. you know, character. And each each one of your friends is just this archetype. And even getting that involved in, in any given character for me is kind of a bit of a goof. Like, I'm, I'm just sort of projecting onto the game. And the real appeal is just that schedule. It's the structure. And it's the feeling of just a little bit of this, a little bit of that. I'm going to do this. I'm going to go to Mementos for a night. I'm going to hang out with this person. I'm going to go and try to eat a big hamburger so that it'll make my stats go up. I'm going to play a video game. And you just get into that rhythm of the schedule. And to me, that's definitely the most appealing thing about these games. It's funny that you're playing with those accessories that like heal your man, your uh, magic points. My SP. Um, SP skill points. Because uh, I feel like that kind of ruins the game. Like the whole one of the appeals of the dungeon crawling part of it is that there's a rhythm to it and that your skill points kind of. Uh, because you're essentially using skills in every single battle, they almost represent your like level of exhaustion. And in some senses, it's literal. Like, yeah, I think uh, when you get to a restroom or at some point, like with voiceover, Makoto or sorry, not Makoto, Morgana mm-hmm. will be like, you guys are looking tired. Maybe you should tap out. And it kind of gives you natural stopping points for, for when it's time to leave the dungeon. Well, the game is designed around this. I mean, as yeah, you which play the game more and more, you can buy more SP replenishing accessories. You can get them from the the doctor you can get stuff that sure. in the rest areas heals you so it's kind of like over the course of the game they want to make it easier for you to go a longer distance but i think it's a lot more fun if you don't play like if you it's the game's a lot more fun if you don't min max it first of all if you just make kind of organic choices but second of all if you take the dungeons a little bit more leisurely and there are also kind of uh force stopping points in most of them where it's like you have to go out and defeat this other guy in mementos before you can keep making progress or whatever yeah I think um, the way that I'm playing it the second time through is just different than the first time. That's how I played it the first time. But this Got time it. through, I'm just in more of a min-maxing mode. Makes because sense. the second time that you play a game like this, it's like it, it's just a natural thing to fall yeah, into. I, I really want to see the new stuff, so I want to kind of max mm-hmm. out the old stuff. But also, I would say that even playing this the first time, I bet some people really fall prey to that. I think that's one of the challenges with this kind of game where you know that any moment 
you know, any choice that you make, there's an opportunity cost. And I explained this a bit in the preamble, but this game is on a schedule and there's a limited amount of time. And sometimes there's really like a limited amount of time to kind of, you know, cause a major story development to happen. Like you have to get a person's social link to a certain level by a certain date. And usually those are pretty easy to do. They're not always easy. I remember Naoto, like maxing Naoto's social link in Persona 4 was actually really hard because she was only in your party for like a month or something like that. So you had to really know what you were doing. And I totally failed to do it the first time through. And there is that kind of niggling feel that you get um, when you're playing through a Persona game and then you realize that you're being closed off from opportunities and, oh, maybe I didn't spend my time optimally. To your point about it being a poo-poo platter, I agree with that. I think that's a salient point. And I also think in addition to like that uh, that kind of being the joy of it is going around and sampling things, it's also the vibe, the music and the rain and the coffee and the curry and all that stuff. I've talked about mm-hmm. that in the past, but that is really what makes the game just like feel like, oh man, I want to spend time in this world. Mm-hmm. That was something that I really liked about it. And as somebody who didn't super enjoy the dungeons, I really liked the fact that there were so many other things to do, especially because even though I agree with you, Kirk, that none of the characters are that deep, that's almost not the point because it is fulfilling the fantasy of you participating in a sort of Buffy the Vampire ensemble cast type of high school scenario. Like you're all fighting demons and each of you has a different personality trope that shines above all your other personality tropes. And that's, you know, you're the, you're the, the beater, the, the mage, whatever your D and D classes are. And that fantasy is the best part of the game. I, like, I really wish I liked the combat more because I feel like that would have been enough to push me over and want to beat it. Uh, because everything else about the game is so great. Like even just the fact that it is constrained to you, you can only have meals at certain places. You can only visit certain places a certain number of times per week. That's really cool. Like not that many games do that to you. I'm so used to games where it's like you press pause and like the meteor is never going to hit the planet. You can just go run Mm -hmm. around and explore infinitely. And a character will warn you at the gate, like, hey, if you live here, you're never coming back again. And Persona is just not at all afraid to cut you off and be like, nope, you're done. Like, that's all you did today. And also mm-hmm. the, the clock keeps going. It's sorry. <laughs> and it's kind of Yeah, and you can waste your time. You can, like, mm-hmm. do a social link with someone and not even get close to, like, leveling yeah, up Yeah, you can link. strike out with people, as it mm-hmm. were, and make have sort of dice rolls not on your side with people or just pick the wrong things because you don't know, mm-hmm. which is also what I was doing when I was playing. I, was, I wasn't using a guide. I was just messing around and enjoying it. And I'm sure I missed things as a result, but it felt more like a real high school experience of not always knowing the right thing to do and just kind of messing around. There's this unstated thing underlying a lot of Persona where if you choose the right thing in every conversation, you will maximize someone's friendship toward you. And it kind of systematizes relationships in a way that's actually pretty creepy when you think oh, yeah. about it. Yeah. And it's it's a, a funny thing about this game that there's this neatness to the fact that every social relationship works according to these very clear rules. But that's not actually how the real world is. And if it were, that would be really weird because then you could like hack the game and make everybody like you, which is not 
how life works. So I think that that's actually an interesting aspect of this game that I wasn't super aware of the first time I played it through and I was reviewing it, that in Persona 5 at least, when you're you know having a conversation with someone, usually when you are doing one of the social link hangouts, you know you go out to get ramen together and you're talking, and you know they're talking about their problem. You know Ryuji got kicked off of the track team, and so he's talking about how much that bums him out. And then you're given three options, and you can choose from among those three options. You know you can kind of support him, or you can kind of give him the hard honest truth, or you can act like you don't know what he's talking about. And for a while, I was kind of role playing in those just for fun. I'd maybe give him the hard honest truth or pretend I didn't know what I was talking about. And then I realized what you really need to do is kind of play into someone's desires and tell them what they want to hear a lot of the time, because Mm -hmm. then you get the most little notes over their head. And that means that you get the most points toward the social link uh, progressing. So when I started to look up guides and I don't use guides on this level, but there are guides for every social link that tell you exactly what thing to choose in every conversation, which really does kind of, once you see that whole social matrix, it makes you realize that if you wanted to spend a lot of time thinking about what this game is saying about social relationships, like it's kind of a weird, uncomfortable thing that it's saying, even Mm -hmm. though I don't actually do that that much. And what I find appealing about the game is actually the way zoomed out view of it, like you were saying, Maddie, just the feeling of being in this big group and going on this big adventure. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can take that one step further because there's romances in the game. When you max out a woman's, uh, one of your girlfriend's uh, social links, you can turn them into your girlfriend. And that's another kind of uh, weird aspect of this whole thing. It's like, not only if you say exactly what someone wants to hear, they'll be a better friend to you. Also, if you say exactly what this girl wants to hear, or it doesn't even matter if you say, like, if you brute force it, to just spend enough time with them, they will right. fall in love with you yeah. no matter what. Right. It's that classic I mean, dating sim problem. It is. I, I also, if you go even further than that, there is actually a lot that's being said about social dynamics in the game just because of how the palaces work and the very nature of reality that's at stake here. Like the whole game is about the idea of unlocking other people's problems by figuring out the demonic manifestation of them in their own brain. And it's a very gamer way to approach any type (laughs) of societal problem to just be like, well, what if instead of therapy, you could go into somebody's head and then just like beat the shit out of their problems as little manifestations of little demon guys and then fight like the evil version of them. And then after you did that, you'd you'd get back out and then they'd be great. It's like it's it's the most maxed out possible version of what we're describing in terms of gamifying social interactions and societal issues. Right. It's in, you know, Persona, this is Persona 5, which mm-hmm. they, each game does have a slightly different oh, conceit when yes. it comes to the dungeons. And Persona 5, yeah, it's you're kind of it's it's very it's the picaresque fiction thing where you're this these bandits, you're the phantom thieves and you break into people's hearts. And then it really borrows from Inception or it's the same kind of idea as Inception where you're going deeper and deeper and deeper into their psyche until you steal the thing they want most mm-hmm. and that changes their heart. Persona 4 is interesting because it it flips the script a little bit and most of the dungeons you do, they're not all this way, but the early ones are actually the psyches of your soon-to-be party members. So instead of playing through a villain's dungeon or palace like you do in Persona 5, each of the palaces is based around some new target, some horrible person, some villain. In Persona 4, it's usually a, a hero, a friend, and they're having some sort of a, you know, personal conflict. And that winds up being interesting because you go into their psyche and then you kind of 
try to figure out what's wrong and they learn to accept themselves and that's when they kind of accept their shadow self and gain the power of the persona. In Persona 5, Futaba, the character, is the closest thing to that where she is a future ally, but you go into her um, into her palace and you have to kind of fight this version of her to help her reconcile her feelings. And that stuff is really cool. I think the that that bigger picture view of of how like the collective unconscious works and how all of our brains allow for these phantasmagorical spaces that we could adventure through like that stuff is really neat and also i i like the sort of shared subconscious that's going on especially in persona 5 of mementos where there's also this endless dungeon that's just under the city of tokyo and it's like everyone's just feelings all just create this huge subway system dungeon that winds up being really important to the story. Yeah, it's just too bad that narratively it's interesting. It's just too bad mechanically Persona 4's dungeons are not interesting at all. No. Um, Persona 3 and 4, unfortunately, their dungeons are just like series of randomly generated hallways, whereas Persona 5 has like these meticulously uh, design dungeons with like winding paths and shortcuts and keys and all sorts of cool stuff and um, scripted encounters and uh, they feel more like proper video games it's hard to uh, go back to Persona 3 and 4 I think at least for me personally because of those random dungeons yeah I've been going back to Persona 4 like I said when I first got a Steam Deck it was before I had figured out how to play PlayStation games on it so I wanted to play Persona just because I'll always associate Persona with handhelds. I played through Persona 3 and specifically there's a portable version and that's actually the version that's being ported to PC and I think Switch yeah, it's is P3P. the better version, yeah. And that's the one that I played through. And actually, we should say Persona 3 Portable is the only one of these games that we're talking about where there is the option to play as a female protagonist, which I really want to do. I know that Persona 3 isn't going to hold up mechanically, but I never did that. Um, I played as a male protagonist the time that I played through it. And I think that that would be really interesting to do that Mm -hmm. again. Um, But I always associate these games with handhelds. And so I was playing through Persona 4 on Steam Deck. It's great on Steam Deck. And... There is something about that game that I still prefer to Persona 5, even though Persona 5 is so much superior in so many ways, just audiovisually in terms of how elaborate the story is, even the simulation, like the amount of options that you have on a given day are way, you just have way more to do. Everything is really blown out. But Persona 4 is the same core. It's very clear that Persona 5 was, you know, basically P-Studio took Persona 4 and said, okay, this one really worked. Let's just basically do that again, but blow everything up to the point where even the character archetypes fit. There's like a detective and the troublemaker friend. <laughs> like, I mean, it's, it's very, very similar. Um, but I like the cast of Persona 4 better. And Jason, you mentioned something. You were talking about the vibes and you said the rain. And I think when you said that, you were talking about Persona 4 because in Persona 4, a big part of that game is the rain. It's not set in a city like Persona 5. You're not in Tokyo. You're out in the country. No, I was talking about five, but yeah, four also has cool rain vibes. But five, five has that specific music track that plays when it rains, and it's awesome. Okay, but I guess the rain is an important story aspect of Persona Four, and I really associate Persona Rain with Persona Four because in th- in that game you go inside the TV because there's sort of another collective unconscious thing within the TV, and the only times when you're going to go in there or when you can go in there are after it rains because the fog comes and then people get kidnapped and taken to the TV. So it all ties in with the weather in a way that's really cool, where you have to watch the weather forecast every day on the TV, and then when it's going to rain, that's when you know you have to finish whatever you're doing because that's going to be the next chapter in the story. And then there are these animations. Your character will be in his little room, and you can hear the rain coming down on the roof. 
and he'll go over to the window and he pushes it open and you can see that it's kind of raining outside and it'll say, I don't remember the exact prompt, but something like, it's raining, you should check the midnight channel. Mm -hmm. And there's just something to that. Like that energy is my favorite thing in all of Persona in all of Persona, in every Persona game. And it's from Persona 4. So playing it again, it took me back and I, I still love it. I still love that more than any one thing in Persona 5, despite that game's many strengths. Mm. So in Persona 4, if you're only going into your friends' minds, is there ever a villain? Like, how does that play into it? Well, so it's a murder mystery, like Jason said. And so there is a villain, but the villain is cloaked in mystery for most of the game. There, It isn't like this series of big, right, you right, know, right. big talking villains like in Persona 5 that you have to take down. It's more there's this ongoing threat. And so what happens at the beginning is someone turns up dead and mm-hmm. no one knows how they've been killed. And then it turns out a person gets sucked into the TV somehow and then they appear on this thing called the Midnight Channel that's a kind of urban legend among the kids where if it rains then you know at midnight you turn on your TV and you'll see I don't know they say they don't know what it is but what you're actually seeing is the TV world this sort of collective unconscious dungeon mm-hmm. and whoever's been kidnapped and thrown into the TV appears there so soon it's your friend appears there and you think oh no you know Yukiko has been kidnapped she's inside the TV we have to go get her out so you go into the TV and the mascot character in there Teddy who's just like Morgana in Persona 5 explains what's going on and you go and there's a new sort of dungeon themed around the character Yukiko and her own you know inner insecurities and you have to then fight through that until you reach the end and you rescue her and she joins you but the big boss is basically just there's someone doing this there's some killer and you're trying to figure out who it is well and if you don't rescue her in time she dies which is the whole premise of like the murderer that that it's like this one murderer uh, or so you think it's this one murderer who's like doing all the kidnapping and throwing people Mm -hmm. into the TV world Mm mm-hmm Is it because they have insecurities that they are susceptible to the TV world? Or is that just happenstance? I can't remember. I think I don't want to reveal too much for people who haven't played because I think some of the facts of that, like, reveal I just think that's one of the more interesting pieces of Persona 5 to me and would maybe also be true of 4 is just the idea of the human mind being something that other people could help you through. I mean, that's the piece of it that I like. Although I was sort of joking around about therapy earlier. I I mean, I think that probably works better than inviting friends into your uh, facsimile of your own mind. <laughs> but I don't know. I've never tried the latter. I do like the yeah. idea of it, though, which I think is that other people can help you through your problems in a way that you can't do on your own and that you might not even be able to fully understand on your own. As far as themes go, I think that's a pretty strong one. Isn't the equivalent of you inviting people into your mind just you telling people to play Super Metroid for a while? Yeah, yeah, it's very <laughs> similar. Yeah, it's that's why I do it. I just want people to understand me. I think that is the like <laughs> metaphorically the strongest footing of this series, and it's it's it is metaphorical because you invite the people into your mind and then they use magic to kick the shit out of your insecurities until yeah, you feel better. Which owns. But of course, you don't have to see it that directly, right? It's more oh, through the power of our of our new friendship, we're going to support you through this. And then that's also reflected in the way that as you become better friends with people, they become more effective in combat. And I really like that too. It, this is an old thing in RPGs and in JRPGs where just this happens kind of naturally in any JRPG where as a character gets more powerful, they come through for me more in combat and I like them more and I just feel like I have a 
fleshed out relationship with them. Partly mm-hmm. because, you know, in these games like like that we've played, like Suikoden or, or um, Final Fantasy VI. Yeah, even if it isn't actually part of Suikoden or those other games, it still feels like it is because you remember certain characters and you're like, oh, I like that guy. That guy's And cool. because you honestly spend more of your time with the characters in combat than anywhere mm-hmm. else because there's so much combat in those games. So the most meaningful part of your relationship is on the battlefield. And so when they're coming through for you, it's, you know, you kind of form a relationship or I form a relationship with characters anyways. And in Persona, that's then taken to a kind of a more heightened level because, you know, if as you level up your social rank with someone, they'll get the ability to come and slap, slap you out of it if you get some kind of negative status effect or, you know, they'll take a hit for you if you're about to be killed. And um, this series, annoyingly, still has the thing where if your main character gets killed in combat, it's an instant game over. But... That sucks, but the thing they mitigate it by having you know characters take the hit for you, which then makes you think, oh, this is cool. This character I've gotten to know is now kind of more helpful to me because because we trust one another a little bit more. Yeah, there mm-hmm. the Shin Megami Tensei games, which is the kind of main series of Persona, is an offshoot of um, have way more cheap deaths and like instant death spells that just like you'll yeah. get into a random encounter and lose an hour of progress because some enemy douchebag cast an instant death spell on you so uh yeah it's it's definitely a thing uh, a vestige of the past in this series that should probably be eliminated <laughs> to cast instant death on instant death spells something i've noticed in royal is just you can see them in real time identifying some of those frustrating things and then trying to fix them because i don't know if there's more of these in royal it seems like there are there's definitely a lot of small mechanical changes and there are all these abilities that you eventually get that say something along the lines of instant death spells won't kill you <laughs> or you know like ways of mitigating this extremely annoying thing cuz yeah there are these light and dark spells that will just instantly kill you i haven't really run into those as much in p5 in persona 4 it was constant and in persona Persona 3 too and it's just it's a spell that just kills you you can't do anything about it and then you get a game over which just it seems like someone somewhere along the line a little earlier than now should have said you know this this isn't really fair it's not a good feeling to just instantly be killed in combat it might not be fun To yeah, this might not be, this might not be a good time. <laughs> so Persona 5 also has more liberal use of save points. Unlike uh, a lot of RPGs, you can't save anywhere. So if you're in a dungeon uh, and you're between save points and you get a game over, you have to go back to the previous save points. So there's there's that tension is always there. Um, but in Persona 5, it doesn't. It's not quite as palpable because there's so many save points and they're very frequent. And you can always you you always have a feel for when is co- when one is coming up in a dungeon. Uh, mm-hmm. Either someone will say something in your party or it'll be like, all right, it's been a while. I feel like one is coming up soon. Right. Mm-hmm. Plus, you could never lose that much progress if there's a lot of save points naturally. Exactly. exactly. You can't, though. I will say the other night I texted Jason an angry stream of texts <laughs> because I was at fighting a boss uh, near the end or the... I not at the end. I guess there's a ton left in Persona. Was it like 5, a but... multi-stage boss? That's always oh, yeah. the worst. And it was. I mean, and the boss was down to a sliver of health, and then just pulled off this ridiculous, mm-hmm. essentially unblockable thing that killed my protagonist. And I had to start the whole fight over, and I was mad. And then whatever, I I I beat the boss. But if that happened in Dark Souls, you would be like, oh, what an amazing game! No, I'm just <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure I would. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I guess maybe I would. But Dark Souls is well. In is, Dark Souls, it would have really taught you different. something about yourself. Right. In Dark Souls, <laughs> it would have gone into your mind palace and really taught you something. There is something different, right, about having a Dark Souls boss beat you when they have a sliver of health left that just feels 
at least to me, a little bit less annoying than when it's just some out of nowhere turn based attack that I couldn't do anything about. Well, it's because it's because in one of the games it's your fault, in the other game it's the game's fault, right? Yeah, right, like, of course. When it's turn based combat and it's just a random death spell or whatever, it's there's nothing mm-hmm. you could have done better. Whereas in Dark Souls, it's always like, well, I could have dodged the, that attacker. I could have mm-hmm. been less cocky going into yeah. this it's, fight. Right. It's it's kind of a difficulty spike thing in Persona. Like the, when I refought that boss, I was more cautious, which you can be by buffing your defense a lot. Like I just always had my defense up because I knew now that the boss was able to pull out this wombo combo that would just kill my protagonist. But you know, there are these spikes and you shouldn't have to anticipate those. And those do still kind of exist in this series. There are some wicked spikes in Persona 4. I remember one. God, it was like a boss with big, tall legs. I don't, All I remember is that because I saw that boss over and over and over again. It's sort of midway through the game. And just for whatever reason, it was just my bane. And Persona 3 certainly has that. And there's way less saving in Persona 3, which I think maybe there will be save states or something, some way of, of mitigating that when they re-release it. I hope so, because that would make that game a lot more palatable <laughs> to mm. replay. Yeah, Persona what's... 3, we haven't really talked about Persona yeah, 3 Yeah, I was about much, to ask but... about yeah. that. What's what's Persona 3's premise? It's kind of an interesting vibe. Just like Persona it 4 is. and 5, you're, it's set in a high school. He plays a bunch of, a group of high school students, very Buffy-ish uh, cast of archetypes and characters. The most Buffy-ish, I would say, too, because yeah. you're explicitly fighting evil. You're this group of mm-hmm. evil fighting and teenagers. And you can be a, a female character. Super and, Buffy. Well, it's a secret. You join this group. You join this group called what is it? C C's S C E S. Yeah, and it's like this uh, secret crime fighting organization where you fight in the shadow world against these monsters, and you uh, you're not supposed to tell the world about it, but you're you're fighting evil every. There's night. a very Giles like. I think mm-hmm. I did a Kotaku uh-huh. post that was basically the one to one for every <laughs> Buffy character yeah. because they, they kind of yeah. all match up. Yep. But there's not mind palaces in there. It doesn't sound like you're no, just it's more the that, shadow realm and there isn't right. the additional layer of and you can change people's minds or learn more about them. If memory serves, it's basically like Mementos in Persona 5 where there's just one dungeon and you're fighting to the top of this huge paranormal tower, basically. And then there are points in the story where they'll say, we need to reach this floor because something's happening there and we have to keep going. So there are kind of waypoints established, but you're really just constantly ascending and you start at the same point throughout the game and then you unlock new sort of waypoints on the elevator or whatever that you can get back up to Mm -hmm. and then eventually you get to the top i got all the way to the one either the final boss or you know since it's a persona game probably the third to final boss but really Mm -hmm. near the end and then i just i'd been kind of winging it through the game because i hadn't played a lot of jrpgs at the time and didn't have a great party Uh and then i was just getting worked by this boss because it's one of those bosses where it changes its elemental affinity every two turns Mm -hmm. and i just didn't have the party that i needed and i kind of gave up and never finished it but it'd be kind of fun to finish it i do i know that that game has its fans and i do like it. it has a slightly more serious tone which the big change to Persona 4 is that it's a little more playful and every, it's like sillier and there's kind of this fun-loving vibe and that game was really successful. So then Persona 5 doubles down on that and everything is very, very silly and fun, even though it's, you know, it's like capers and stuff, but it's not even a murder mystery. I mean, it's really pretty light. Where Persona 3 is more serious. It's, you know, we're fighting these demons. We're part of this like serious group. This is scary end of the world stuff. And we're trying to save the world. And it's that's cool. It's got a it's got a different vibe. It's a lot more like the standard SMT games, which are sure. a lot more serious and a lot more mm-hmm. just like fighting demons in this strange world. Mm-hmm. And also you can right. actually die and the stakes are life or death where Persona 5, it's not to say you can't actually die, but 
the villains, you're just fighting to change the mind of regular people in the world as opposed to, well, maybe there's mass murders later on and you're trying to <laughs> it, it change escalates. the minds of cannibal electors <laughs> and so on. But Persona 5 significantly escalates, I, but it I'm starts sure it a does. little smaller. Yeah, it starts off with just like a gym teacher, but it gets into more powerful people. Last thing I want to mention is uh, Shoji Meguro in particular. There are a few developers who are associated with this game, but Shoji Meguro is the primary composer, though there are other people who've written the music. Oh, yeah. And How these have we not games, talked about the music this whole yeah, time? It's I incredible. I gotta at least mention it. It's it is incredible. Really cool kind of jazz fusion with a little bit of sort of rapping and singing, but it's got this just kind of an inimitable vibe. It's funky, it's really up-tempo, and he's just a great writer, and... The way this series uses music is, I think, crucial to the overall rhythm of it because it repeats these songs. You hear them over and over and over again. And, you know, you just kind of start to develop, you like associate them with whatever you're doing. We're hatching a plan or someone's having an emotional breakthrough or something sad is happening and someone's going to die or shit is on and we're going to go beat up the bad guys. Like whatever it is, there's some piece of music that plays whenever that happens. And because these games are dozens and dozens of hours long, those situations replay over and over again and you always get the same music. So it's exciting in that way. And then it's also exciting when toward the end of the game, when shit is really going down, there will be new music and this whole new song comes on and then you're, you realize, oh man, like this is new music. I've heard all those other pieces so many times that this must really be important. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, the music in these games, I mean, all of it, the art is incredible as well, but the music is something special. Yeah, it's really good. And I remember feeling kind of sad that I was listening to podcasts while doing the dungeons to sort of like keep my <laughs> brain activated because I also really liked the music. And I was like, there's no, I can't, there isn't a good way for me to deal with this problem. It just, no, it it's true. It At least the dungeons are repetitive. But yeah, if you're going to get the music, you got to listen to the music. It's true. It's great. All right. Well, that is our kind of brief recap of the Persona series. Of course, 100 hour <laughs> games would require hundreds of hours to talk about them. But hopefully this will suffice. Anyways, that's Persona. Let's take a break and then we'll be back with one more thing. Her Majesty served Great Britain and the Commonwealth loyally for over 70 years. And while, of course, we feel a profound sadness, we must remember she lived a long life and died in such a way that I think many of us would want for ourselves. She was at home, surrounded by her family. And, of course, she was listening to the Beef and Dairy Network podcast. The Beef and Dairy Network podcast is a multi-award-winning comedy podcast, and you can find it at MaximumFun.org or wherever you get your podcasts. You're in a theater. The lights go down. You're about to get swept up by the characters and all their little details and interpersonal dramas. You look at them and think, that person is so obviously in love with their best friend. Wait, am I in love with my best friend? That character's mom is so overbearing. Why doesn't she just stand up to her? Oh, God, do I need to stand up to my own mother? If you've ever recognized yourself in a movie, then join me, Jordan Cruciola, for the podcast Feeling Seen. We've talked to author Susan Orlean on realizing her own marriage was falling apart after watching Adaptation, an adaptation of her own work, and comedian Hari Kondabolu on why Harold and Kumar was a depressingly important movie for Southeast Asians. So join me every Thursday for the Feeling Scene podcast here on Maximum Fun. And we're back for one more thing. Jason, why don't you go first? 
Yeah, this is really exciting. There's nothing I love more than like playing a game that nobody's talking about and discovering that it's secretly amazing. So I've been mm. playing a game that has skyrocketed. Well, I just finished a game that has skyrocketed to the top of my favorite games of 2022 list. It is called The Case of the Golden Idol. And it is a mystery detective game. I actually discovered this game because uh, Lucas Pope, who was the creator of Return of the Obra Dinn, tweeted about it. And if so, if Lucas Pope tweets his uh, resounding approval of a game, I will probably look into it. And this game is incredible, you guys. You guys will both fall immediately in love with it, just like I have. I have a feeling that anyone out there who is into like mystery games, detective games, and especially Return of the Obra Dinn will be really into it. So let me explain. Um, first of all, the art style is a little off-putting at first, but you get used to it. And it actually really grew on me um, as, as I played along. So the concept of this game is it's broken up into chapters and then episodes within each chapter. In each episode, some Someone dies and you have to figure out not just how that happened, but also a sequence of events that led up to that. And you do that by kind of exploring this rudimentary point and click world where there are a bunch of it's these big 2D landscapes and you can move around the world and there are a bunch of um, people and a bunch of objects. And as you're kind of clicking through and looking into them, you will uh, accumulate a uh, inventory full of words. So let's say you find someone named Bob who's been killed. Um, you might first discover the name Bob because you found a diary that he was holding and it said, my name is Bob. And then it might say, I sure hope that Kirk doesn't come and kill me tonight. And then you'll discover mm. the word Kirk and then you'll discover the word kill. And then the way to make progress is you kind of flip from investigate mode into think mode. And it'll say it'll it'll present this kind of scroll of like uh, missing words, fill in the blanks, and you have to determine what happened. So it might be like um, on a summer night, blank was in the study when blank came and killed him with the blank. And you have to fill in mm. all those words. Mm -hmm. Um and it starts off simple and then gets super complicated and elaborate. And you have to do all this kind of um, puzzling in your head and investigating and sleuth work to figure out each sequence of events as it happened. And it's brilliant. By the end of it, I was like, oh, man, this is so cool because it's not a bunch of self-contained stories. Well, it is, but it's self-contained stories that are all connected and add up to this like larger story and larger theme. So um, you might find that like uh, you're investigating this murder of someone you've never heard of only for it to pop up later that actually this person was super important nice. for this reason. And it's very, very well crafted in that sense. Um, and tells this incredible story about this idol with magical powers and this kind of like brotherhood of conspirators who wear masks and have crazy, crazy, uh, rituals and stuff and it gets really really cool um, and so much of it is just like relying on your intuition and you're just like logical thinking which mm. is so cool and so much fun to play and it's just like again one of those games just like over din where you're like wow um, we still don't even know the half of what detective stories can do with like video games can do with detectives and it's just so cool to play another fresh game like this and just just such an enjoyable experience again it's called um the Case of the Golden Idol. I played it on PC. It took me like six or seven hours to finish the whole thing. Yeah, I was so going to say, that's the very best news. digestible. Is mm -hmm. that before the show, you told us it was six hours, which yeah. that's like yeah, the perfect very length for easy, something like that. Easy to take down. I mean, some people, depending on your like puzzle solving skills, I guess, some people might take a little less time or a little bit more time, but that's generally it. Um, I had to pull out the notebook for a couple of things, which is always just a thrill. Yeah, that's good to, news. Yeah. Just like my other favorite game of the year, I'll 
Elden Ring, no book required. <laughs> and yeah, man, I just loved it. I, I think it's going to be, it's going to, I'll certainly talk about it when Game of the Year time comes around and uh, highly recommend it, especially if you're into Oberdain, if you're into any sort of detective stories or mystery stories, you will really enjoy this game. And don't let the art style put you off because it really grows on you. At least it did on me. At first I was like, man, this looks like it was drawn in paint or something, but it actually really grew on me over time. Cool. Nice. I'm going to check it out. The Golden Idol. Oh, yeah. I'm absolutely going to play it. I'm sure we will talk about it on the show. Maddie, what's your one more thing? So, I'm playing a bunch of games that are under embargo, which means I can't believe that I have to then make my one more thing Hocus Pocus (laughs) one and two, which really I didn't think I was going to talk about on this show forever. But I never saw Hocus Pocus as a child. Uh, This is a a somewhat famous 1993 film in which Bette Midler, Sarah Jessica Parker and Kathy Najimy play three witches. And it's really goofy. It's it's (laughs) like peak kids movie. This is like the thing where I watched Princess Bride when I was a little too old. And then I like had to wait till I was even older to even think it was good. Like this movie (laughs) is in that zone where it's so silly that like adults probably shouldn't watch it for the first time when they're 36 years old. But I did that. (laughs) Dina also had never seen it before. And we both were kind of like, let's just, let's just see what this is, you know? So we did that. And then we also watched Hocus Pocus 2, which is of course the 2022 reboot remaster. Everybody's back together again. And all the characters are going to be little references to what happened in one. (laughs) And it's pretty funny to watch movies like that back to back in one evening, especially if you've never seen the preliminary one. (laughs) Um, So I made a game out of it where I predicted everything that would happen in the sequel and I did really well. So I want to just quickly (laughs) rattle off some things. These are not spoilers because these are things that I was proven right about within the first three minutes of the second movie. Nice. The first movie, almost entirely white cast. It's pretty classic for the 90s. I immediately predicted second movie, it's going to be really diverse. Don't worry, folks. <laughs> There's a whole diverse cast. The lead character is this black girl who discovers her witchy, witchy self, her witchy fandom. Second prediction, I was like, okay. The witches are actually the best part of the first movie. And they're quite evil in the first movie. They're like out here murdering children within like the first two seconds. If they eat kids, it's scary. But I was like, the problem is everybody loves the witches. So how are they going to fix that for the second one? (laughs) That is the entire plot of the second one is that everyone loves the witches. And that is the tension is whether the witches are good or bad. And my Mm. other prediction, which I can't reveal, but I'll just say the movie gets into it. And I've been thinking about this a lot because I can say I am playing Bayonetta 3 and I did play replay in my case Bayonetta 1 and 2. The tough thing about having a witch as your heroine is that she is doomed to hell. She has signed a pact with the devil. The (laughs) devil is real. The devil is a real guy. She signed a pact with him and she is going to hell. And that is how she got her magic powers. And that is the premise of the first Hocus Pocus. And for better or worse, it's the premise of the second one, too. You really can't get around it. They introduce a funny, fallible preacher character who you're supposed to hate. You're really supposed to not like that guy. But, like, the witches are going to hell. And the end of Hocus Pocus 2 kind of finds a way to just be like, don't worry about it. And that was incredible to me. So uh, I was amazed. I kind of recommend watching Hocus Pocus 1 and 2. Maybe get not sober if that's something that you're into. I recommend that as well (laughs) if that's something you're going to do. But yeah, they're both, they're fun. They're they're ridiculous. And if you're playing Bayonetta, it's like not a bad thing to also watch on top of that. 
Nice, That's like it. a companion, companion watch. Yeah, I always get that mixed up with bed knobs and broomsticks. But yes, I think I've me seen too. Hope, There's Hocus a lot Pocus. of like witchy movies from yeah. that time period. A hot I haven't time seen bed knobs and broomsticks either. I don't, I'm, I'm, I'm out here not watching these movies. I was scared of everything as a kid. I couldn't watch these mm. things. Too much supernatural action. Mm -hmm. Nice. All right. Well, my one more thing is a show that I think we're going to be talking about more in the future, but that I just wanted to mention on the show because I've seen some people saying that they haven't watched it yet or that they weren't sure about it. And I wanted to give it a hearty endorsement. And that is Star Wars Andor, the new Star Wars show that's airing on Disney Plus. Which you will not stop talking about. I know. I am also watching it in part because of Kirk's hearty endorsement. And I'm now caught up <laughs> and I'm very glad I'm caught up. It is very enjoyable. It's a good friggin' TV show. That's what I'll say about it. So Andor is the story of Cassian Andor, who was one of the protagonists of Rogue One, one of the doomed protagonists of Rogue One. So he was on the mission that stole the Death Star plans and he died. Mm -hmm. And this is his story. So this Played is how the, he became... The gorgeous Diego Luna, the... Yes. the Remarkable Diego Luna. Yes, he is played by Diego Luna. Um, this series also features a lot of actors that I'm not familiar with, though some that I've seen in in other things. I'm forgetting the guy's name. Like Stellan Skarsgård, for example, well, you've probably seen in something else. <laughs> no, Stel he was the only other person I had down as someone I was going to say that I recognized, but no. <laughs> Yeah. Um, the guy who played John Carreyrou in in uh, The Dropout is actually in this, and I really like that actor. I'm forgetting his name right now, but uh, he's he's really he's good. He's also in The Bear, right? Yeah, he he's the in The Bear. Yes, and he's also he's in The in Bear. So this is the story of Cassian Andor, who at the beginning of this is kind of just a guy, like sort of a smuggler, and then it's the long story of how someone becomes a member of a rebellion under fascism, basically. And it's a spy story. So the whole thing is very muted. It's very low-key. It's very show-don't-tell. And the and it's very paranoid and intense. And that's kind of how I'd describe it. It's not a mode I've ever seen Star Wars in. Neither. And at this point, six episodes in, it's it doesn't even feel right to compare it to other Star Wars stuff. Like, to say things like, it's the best Star Wars thing I've ever seen. Because I guess that's true, but it's so different that mm -hmm. it just feels like watching a really, really good, beautiful-looking, well-acted, well-written, fantastical spy story that happens to be set in this kind of sci-fi world. And that's also Star mm -hmm. Wars. It's kind of a heist, too, by the way, which I really enjoy. great heist. heist. The, oh my the God, story just... of, like, watching how a guy became what he is today, like, it sounds like Better Call Saul. It sounds like the Star Wars version of Better Call Saul. Mm. I mean, it's, it's not. It it's but... not as funny or like sort of crisp or Bob Odenkirky as Better Call Saul can only be. It's much more, I don't know, tragic and meditative, but also has exciting action nail biter parts because there's the thriller heist planning aspect of it all. And is the Empire going to figure out what we're like doing? That sounds like Better Call Saul. Yeah, well, that part does, for sure. Yeah. It's nothing like Better Call Saul, but I understand <laughs> the character drama. Like, I just um, want to talk about Better Call Saul. I don't care about your Star Wars nonsense. Go ahead. So to, to address one thing that people have said, though, is do I need to have watched all these other Star Wars shows, especially no. like Boba Fett and Obi-Wan Kenobi, these shows that have been mediocre at best, which at least I feel that way? No, you do not. In fact... You almost don't have to have seen Star Wars at all to enjoy this show. Mm -hmm. You can, if you get that the Empire is this horrible, 
fascist empire that's taking over everything. That's really all you need to know. There's mm-hmm. a couple of references. You know, there's stuff set on Coruscant. There are things that are from the movie. But this is the least Star Wars thing. Like, there is this big heist. The most recent episode, episode six, was sort of a, a culmination. And there's a heist. And at no point in the heist does anyone look at another person and say, I have a bad feeling about this. <laughs> Never happens. There's nothing like that in this no series. No one has the last name Skywalker. <laughs> Yeah, no, I haven't seen there a single no Jedi. lightsaber so far. No there Jedi. haven't even been any stormtroopers yet. It's entirely just mm-hmm. soldiers. There are very few aliens, which is actually a little sad to me. That's probably my only thing where I'm like, I wish there was a little more of the Star Wars vibe. There in terms was of... a doctor there with is a, arms who is called Dr. Quadpaw. <laughs> there's a couple other side characters who are aliens. <laughs> hold on, Just hold in on. the background. <laughs> You're like, this is a serious show about real people. This is like... The doctor has peak. four it's hands like as Star well. <laughs> this is Dr. Quadpaw. <laughs> so you don't learn his name on the show, but you'll see when you watch this, is he is a minor character in an extremely intense and sad scene. I know, and like, he's just a guy of, with four arms. Arms. Like Wild he doesn't... that a doctor with four arms is like in uh-huh. one of the saddest moments of the show, and his name's Doctor Quadpa. So, Don't form any conclusions. And, based and on the that. cantina music is called Jizz. <laughs> we don't talk about that. <laughs> I mean, what can you do? It's Star Wars. It's still kind of silly at the end of the day. But like, this is the least silly it's ever been, for for better or worse. No, I mean, you've sold me. You've sold me. You, Kirk, you sold me. I, I, know, I know I've sold you. I'm 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 not trying to sell you. I know that you're going to watch it. I don't think this show is silly. Actually, I don't think it's that not. it's kind of silly in the end. Well, that's what I said. That's what I said. For what oh, okay. I said this is the least silly it's ever been. I would say like it's just a fundamentally serious show about real people, and that's the thing I keep saying to myself watching it is basically. What if Star Wars was about real people? It's just never quite felt that way. And that's not a bad thing. Like, at its best, it's about these larger-than-life characters, these archetypes, you know, crashing into one another and this these big, dramatic, operatic things happening. This is just not that. It's just about people. They talk like people. They act like people. And the way that it does its work and it builds to these climaxes is amazing. It's structured in these three—so far, it's been two, three-episode series of, you know, like, mini— movies, kind of. So episodes one to three, which they release all at once, that's its own arc. And then episodes uh, four through six, that's its own arc. Apparently seven is going to be a standalone thing. Eight, nine, and ten, another three-episode arc. And then 11 and 12 ends the thing. Then it's going to come back for 12 more episodes in season two, and that's going to be the end of it. The showrunner is Tony Gilroy, who incidentally uh, wrote the screenplay for uh, Michael Clayton and also directed it. That's so which funny. Which is one more thing of mine. I had no wow. idea. Wow. Totally Jesus. random huh. that I watched Michael Clayton. And actually, there's real Michael Clayton energy to this show as well. And the last thing I want to shout out, maybe the most important thing, you won't be surprised to hear that I think this, is the music. music for this show is composed by Nicholas Bertel. Many of you will know him as the composer of the Succession theme, among many other things, but maybe the most exciting composer in Hollywood right now. He's done a lot of amazing stuff, but this score moves completely away from John Williams. It's not even trying to sound like John Williams. And that, to me, more than anything, watching Rogue One, that was the thing that didn't work for me in Rogue One. Uh, Michael Giacchino scored that one. And it just, it has this theme, ba 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 Like, it kind of sounds like Star Wars, that theme. The Andor theme doesn't sound like it at all. Bertel composed a ton of music for this show. There's all this experimental stuff, these beautiful, like, string textures, these builds, these dark, th- oh my god, I could, I'll probably on Strong Songs, we'll talk about the music for it. But it, it creates this vibe, and there's just a feeling throughout this whole show that everyone's on the same page, 
Everyone's bringing their A game. Everyone knew they were making something special. And it's the most excited I've been about a TV show in a long time. So I just wanted to heartily endorse it on the show. Tell people to go watch it if you haven't watched it yet. It's so, so good. It rules. I'm stoked. We'll talk about yeah. it more on the show. Yeah, we, we will. will talk about all, it more on the show. We all watch it. That will definitely happen. All right, that's enough of me ranting about Andor. It's good, though. Um, <laughs> it's good. This has been another episode of Triple Click. Hey, Done we did it. it. Hey, we did it. Done it again. We made it. It's almost almost November. It's almost the end of the year. Wow, we're really wow. Um, it's almost Halloween. cranking through it. What a yeah. weird year. It's really, it's really <laughs> flown by. Uh-huh. All right, well, we'll be back for another episode next week. Until then, I will see the two of you when I see you. See you next week. Bye. Triple Click is produced by Jason Schreier, Maddie Myers, and me, Kirk Hamilton. I edit and mix the show and also wrote our theme music. Our show art is by Tom DJ. Some of the games and products we talked about on this episode may have been sent to us for free for review consideration. You can find a link to our ethics policy in the show notes. Triple Click is a proud member of the Maximum Fun Podcast Network, and if you like our show, we hope you'll consider supporting us by becoming a member at MaximumFun.org join. Find us on Twitter at TripleClickPod, send email to TripleClick at MaximumFun.org, and find a link to our Discord in the show notes. Thanks for listening. See you next time. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.